Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. On Wednesday night, we're going through the book of Galatians, six of the most important chapters that form one of the greatest documents ever penned by Paul the Apostle. That's what we're going to overview on Wednesday night. It will be our 51st week in the Bible from 30,000 feet. So we're coming up on the year mark of that, and we're doing pretty good. That's Galatians for Wednesday night. Now, I've got to give you a little warning. Um, tomorrow morning, starting tomorrow on our radio station, KNKT, Political ads will be run. It's not political ads that we are putting on, but rather, according to the Federal Communications Commission that regulates all this, uh, we have to open it up for anybody who wants to put an ad on uh, for a candidate. So uh, they want to buy the time, they can do it. We can't say we don't allow that. Uh, It's an equal time kind of a thing. So I'm warning you in case you turn on our station and hear an ad for the candidate or candidates that you're not endorsing. And you're thinking, how could they do that? Because the FCC, who regulates it, makes us do it. So um, I can't tell you who to vote for. I wish I could. Um, But I can tell you that you should vote for those who uphold what uh, we consider biblical values. And we'll have report cards of what those candidates believe in. So we hope you get involved and that you uh, vote accordingly. But you're going to hear ads uh, for everybody and their pets probably uh, starting tomorrow. So, a disclaimer. Would you turn in your Bibles to uh, Psalm 19, if you haven't already, and and we'll get ready for our study this morning. Now, I'm going to say a sentence, and when I do, you're going to be able to guess what game I'm referring to. Right? Colonel Mustard in the library with the candlestick. You, You know exactly what game that is. It's Clue. And the, the game of Clue uh, is set in a mansion. Somebody has died. A murder has been committed. And the player gathers clues as he or she moves through the game into each room and has to determine who is the perpetrator, uh, where it happened, and what was the weapon that was used. And you win the game of Clue. Well, as we look around in the universe, what clues do we have of God's existence? We started a series called The Biography of God, and last week we considered two great realities and two great responsibilities. The great realities is that God exists and He's personal, and the responsibilities is faith and pursuit. That's what we examined last week, but we want to get even more general today. How do we know? What are the clues that God has left I want to start with a story that is a reprint from an article in the London Observer. A family of mice lived in a grand piano. They enjoyed listening to the music that came from the great player who they never saw, but who they believed in, because they enjoyed the music that came from the piano. One day, one of the little mice got especially brave. He climbed deep into the bowels of the piano. He made an astonishing discovery. The music did not come from a great player. Rather, the music came from wires that reverberated back and forth. The little mouse returned to his family tremendously excited. He informed his family that there was no great player who made the piano music. 
Rather, there were these little wires that reverberated back and forth. The family of mice abandoned their belief in the great piano player. Instead, they had a totally mechanistic view. One day, another one of the little mice got especially brave, and he climbed even further up into the bowels of the piano. To his amazement, he found that indeed the music did not come from reverberating wires, but rather from little hammers that struck the wires. It was those hammers that really made the music. And so he returned to his family with a new description of the source of the music. The family of mice rejoiced that they were so educated that they understood there was no great piano player, but that the music came from little hammers that struck the wires. The family of mice did not believe there was a player playing the piano. Instead, they believed that their mechanistic understanding of the universe explained all of reality. But the fact is that the player continued to play his music. Now, what those mice did in explaining music without a piano player, mankind has done in explaining the universe without God. So what, what are the, the evidences or the clues for God's existence? Today, I'm going to ask you to do something a little bit different. Um, though you are always very careful to listen and engage, this is a call to worship the Lord with your mind. You know, the Bible says you're to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And uh, I want to engage your thinking a little bit. And I know, I know you might be thinking, well, you know, Skip, you're going to talk a little bit about the evidences for the existence of God. This is a church service, Skip. You're preaching to the choir. We don't need this. Well, it could be that you've never struggled with the existence of God. The rest of us, however, at some point in our life, have. And even if you're beyond that, I bet you have kids or grandkids that one day will. Or maybe you've been in Starbucks and you've had a conversation with somebody who didn't believe in God. And as they postulated their argument, you sort of felt weird and you thought, man, I wish I had answers for this. Well, they're out there and I want to give you some of them today. Very, very meaningful. I remember being a kid walking outside one day and looking up and saying, are you really there? Do you exist? And, and how could I know that you exist? I found that I wasn't alone. I was reading a book just this week by J. Carl Laney, simply called God. And he said when he was a teenager, he wanted to know if God existed. And listen to his scientific means to discover it. He reached in his pocket, grabbed a coin, and flipped the coin. Heads, there's a God. Tails, there's not. He was a little more direct. He actually said, God, if you exist, then make the coin turn up heads. He flipped it, and amazingly, it turned up heads. But now he thought, well, could that be coincidence? <laughs> so he thought, I better try it again. He flipped it a second time. It turned up tails this time. So now he's caught in a dilemma. Does God exist or doesn't he? Decided to flip it a third time and it turned up heads. And he writes, I decided not to try this test again. I wanted to quit my little experiment with the weight of the evidence on the side of God's existence. Is that all it is? Is it just wish fulfillment? Or are there clues that we can follow? Has the creator left clues? 
Now, we could say, look, I know there's a God because the Bible says so. That's that's good for us. But there are people that argument doesn't work with. You got to go back before you get them to the Bible and before you get them to the place of acknowledging God's revelation to something more general. So we want to look in three places for clues. We want to look for something. We want to look at something and we want to look in something. We want to look for a cause, a cause for the universe, for all things that exist. We want to look at the natural world itself, the cosmos, as it is called. And we want to look within the conscience of man. Psalm 19 and in Romans 1, the writers reflect some of these very thoughts. Psalm 19, verse 1, David is writing, The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament or the expanse shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven, its circuit to the other end. There is nothing hidden from its heat. David is simply acknowledging that God is readily seen in the natural world. And as a shepherd boy, he noticed that there were routine things that happened. There seemed to be design and order and regularity and predictability. And that's called philosophically the teleological argument for the existence of God. Um, don't care if you remember that term, but that's what they call it. Then in Romans chapter 1, Paul is writing, and he sort of picks up on this idea, but takes it from another angle. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest or shown plainly in them, for God has shown it to them. Notice those two phrases, in them and to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. What Paul is saying is that God has left his imprint, both in the world as well as within us, blazoned into our conscience. And, and philosophers would call this the cosmological argument and the moral law. Again, it doesn't matter if you remember those terms, but we're going to work our way through these three clues today. Now, I've taken philosophy courses once um, I was studying for a master's degree in biblical studies, and I had to read through reams of philosophical thought. I found out philosophers 
are a confused bunch of folks. I mean, I would read through a lot of different positions, and at the end of it, I go, huh? What? Somebody, I think, was right when they said philosophers are people who talk about things they don't understand, and they make it sound like it's your fault. Today, what I want to do in taking these three clues is I hope to put the cookies on the bottom shelf to make these usable tools for us in the days ahead. The first clue that God has left is that we look for a cause. That is, everything that exists must have a cause. Everything that is contingent has a cause. What is the first cause? I'll give you a, a piece of wise philosophy that I heard and a little, a little axiom summed up this way. Whenever there is a thing, there must have been a preceding thought. Wherever there is a thought, there must have been a thinker. That is the cosmological argument. Everything in the universe must have a basis or a sufficient reason. And everything that has a cause must have a first cause, or put it this way, a first uncaused cause. So you can go back all the way. You remember when you were a kid and you said, I believe in God, and your friend would say, well, then who created God? And if you could come with an answer, well, then who created? And then who created? And that's called infinite regression. Well, you can't do that. There has to be somewhere a first uncaused cause. Cause. And this is the very argument that Plato, Aristotle, and some of the ancient philosophers grappled with and articulated very well. And some of the greatest minds in history have held to this. I don't know if you've heard of Moses Maimonides, a 12th century Jewish scholar, or Anselm, or Thomas Aquinas, or even Spinoza, Descartes, uh, Leibniz, German mathematician and philosopher. In fact, the German mathematician Leibniz said the first question that must be asked is why is there something rather than nothing? Now just think about that. First question that must be asked, why is there something rather than nothing? In other words, why does anything exist at all? And the answer, nothing happens without sufficient reason. Some of you will remember a movie with Julie Andrews in it. It was The Sound of Music. Remember that? How many saw that film? Okay. Remember the song she sang? That's a dumb question because she sang a lot of songs in the movie. But when she was having a romantic tryst with, uh, I think it was Colonel Von Trapp, and she was singing about that, lyrics to one of her songs were, Nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. See, you didn't know Julie Andrews was a great theologian and philosopher, did you? That is very true. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So ask that to your atheist friends. If nothing comes from nothing, then why is there something? It's a very basic question. Because everything must have a cause. So there was a Christian walking through the woods with an atheist. And they came upon a large, eight-foot-in-diameter glass ball. And the Christian said, huh, where'd that come from? The atheist said, I don't know, but someone must have put it there. They both agreed. So then the Christian thought, okay, um, what if the ball was a little bit larger, say 16 feet in diameter? Would that also need a cause? 
the atheist said, well, sure, smaller balls need causes and larger balls also need cause. So then the Christian smiled and said, okay, well, what if the ball was 8,000 miles in diameter and almost 25,000 miles in circumference and size of the earth? And so the atheist saw that trap coming and, and said, well, sure, you're right. Um, if smaller balls need causes and larger balls need causes, then a really big ball needs a cause. So the Christian said, okay, now, what if you make the ball the size of the universe? Does it need a cause? And the atheist said, of course not. The universe is just there. And that's just a little argument that is thrown out in some philosophy courses. But that's about as good as the explanation for the universe gets with some people. You know, atheists used to laugh at us for saying someone made something out of nothing. They used to laugh at us for that. Now we can laugh at them for saying nothing made something out of nothing. No wonder Paul says, from the time the world was created, the people have seen the earth and the sky and all that God has made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse whatsoever for not knowing God. And we've learned a few things over the years. We've learned that our universe is expanding. There's debate as to the rate of expansion, but we know that it is expanding. Now, if you put that process in reverse, what happens? The universe collapses into nothingness. And you get back to where there's no space, no time, and no matter. And according to the theory of general relativity, you can never have space without time. And you can never have space and time without matter. So if matter had a beginning, and we know it does or had, then time must have had a beginning, and the universe therefore is not eternal. So what is the first uncaused cause of it all? That's the question that must be answered. So we go all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible opens up with the first uncaused cause. It opens up with a cosmological argument. The second clue is not looking for a cause, but looking at the world itself, looking at the cosmos, as it is called. Carl Sagan loved to call it that, the world in which we live, the cosmos. And as we look around, boy, it, it looks as though, this is what they'll say, it looks as though it's been designed. It appears to be an ordered system. It even seems as if the universe anticipated us. It's funny, I've heard this language from very astute scientific minds who do not believe in God as the first cause, but they'll say, hmm, it looks as though, just so happens, it looks as though the universe is finely tuned to anticipate advanced, complex, carbon-based life like ours. Now, this is uh, the teleological argument, the argument from design. And even the ancient Greek philosophers were impressed by the order of the universe. And Plato, in, in refuting atheism successfully in his time, said, quote, The order and the motion of the stars shows a mind that ordered it. Of course, he was polytheistic, but 
theistic nonetheless and believing that it didn't come by random chance. And so David writes in Psalm 19, and we just looked at it, day after day they pour forth their speech, and night after night they display knowledge. I recommend to you, we did it about a year ago, I'll do it again, a great book now turned into a film called The Privileged Planet. It's excellent. It's excellent. And the researchers in the book and in the film show that the earth is uniquely situated within the Milky Way galaxy at a place that they call the galactic habitable zone. That there are a very thin uh, margin of space that could accommodate the advanced complex carbon-based life that we enjoy on earth. It couldn't happen anywhere in the galaxy. It's just this very tiny little corner and we happen to be there. It's perfect for habitation. It's also perfect for observability for us to look at the universe around us and to enjoy it. And so think about it. It just so happened that the earth is 93 million miles away from the host star, the sun, that has a surface temperature of 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Isn't that great that it just so happened to be that way? Because if, if our orbit was just a little bit closer like Venus, we'd all burn up. Just a little bit further away like Mars, we'd all freeze to death. Life couldn't happen. It just so happens that the earth is spinning 365 and a third times on its axis as it makes its yearly jaunt around the sun. Why? Why not 30 times? Well, then the days and nights would be 10 times longer and there'd be alternate periods of very, very hot and very, very cold freezing and life couldn't exist. We couldn't enjoy it. It just so happens that the earth is tilted 23 and a half degrees on its axis, stabilized by a large moon. Very important. That enables the four seasons that bring us this kind of constant, stable life on earth. It just so happens that the gravitational force and acceleration of gravity at 9.8 ms squared is what it is. If it was a little heavier, we'd not be able to move. If it was a little bit less, we'd fly off. It just so happens that our atmosphere on this privileged planet is a combination of oxygen to nitrogen, 79 to 20 percent, with 1 percent of variant gases. just happens to be that way. If it were 50 percent and 50 percent, the first guy to light a match, first guy to light up a cigarette, kaboom, we'd be blown off this planet. It just so happens that the oceans are the dimension that they are. Isn't that, isn't that a fluke of nature? That the ocean and landmass are the ratio that they are. It's estimated that if the oceans were half of the present size, we would only have one-fourth of the rainfall annually that we get on the earth. You know what that would mean to New Mexico. In places like uh, dry deserts don't get a whole lot of it. It'd be horrible. If the oceans were just one-eighth larger than they are, we'd have four times the amount of rainfall and the earth would be a swamp. And what about all that space up there? It just so happens that all of that space and placement of the planets in our galaxy are there perfectly and needed for life on earth. How many of you saw a movie some years back called Contact. Ever see that movie? Contact. Filmed largely in New Mexico. And uh, written by Carl Sagan, by the way. The, the book. 
And so here's these big devices pointed out towards space, reading radio waves to see if there's aliens communicating with Earth, intelligent life out there. And um, there was a sentence, a sub-theme that ran through the movie. It was mentioned two or three times. It said, if, there's, if there isn't life elsewhere, then there's a lot of wasted space out there. He said that a few times in the movie. If there isn't life elsewhere, then there's a lot of wasted space out there. That turns out to be very untrue. There's no wasted space. And the position in space of the bodies and the planets are very necessary to buffer us on this earth from things like um, solar winds that could destroy us or debris coming through space. The placement of Jupiter, uh, for instance, shields us from objects that would careen toward the earth and destroy life on earth. Did you know that there have been objects as large as the earth coming toward the earth? If they were to hit the earth, it would be total destruction. But they're shielded by Jupiter. It just so happens that the way they orbit the sun shields us. Well, we listen to that and we go, it didn't just so happen. It was just so designed that way. Exactly. Exactly. The design element defies that it just so happened, and it's a clue that God has left for us to observe. I don't know if you've ever heard of the name Antony Flew. Antony Flew was the most famous intellectual atheist. For 50 years, he provided the source material for the atheistic arguments of some of the smartest atheists in the world. Uh, the ones that are most famous used his material. Antony Flew presented a paper before C.S. Lewis's Socratic Club defending the atheistic position very effectively. Until 2004. In 2004, Antony Flew made a shocking announcement. This one-time ardent atheist said, God must exist. Shocked the world. He said the universe must be the work of an intelligent designer. Now, why did he say this? Because he studied the DNA. And as he studied the DNA, he said it shows that intelligence must have been involved in getting these extraordinarily diverse elements together. The enormous complexity looks to me like the work of design. Ta-da! He found the clue. He found the clue of design. He figured it out. It's the same thing as if you were to walk along the road and you find a watch. This is Paley's argument, William Paley, the watchmaker argument. Still a very good argument, by the way. If you find a watch, you look at it and you go, I bet there's a watchmaker somewhere who made the watch. See, that's more plausible than if I were to say, no, 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 no. Actually, what happened is over billions of years, explosions and floods and gases and Earth's crust shifted and glass finally formed over a metal object. And little hands grew inside and gears and took billions of years. But you'd say, you're an idiot. You'd be right. Because the design infers the designer. Just like if you see a painting, you must think, I bet there's a painter. Or if you find a book, I bet there was an author. Or if you hear music, I bet there was a musician and a songwriter behind it all. The design speaks of the designer. And so David wrote, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament, or the starry expanse, shows his handiwork. Now, for, for those of us who are believers... 
It's, it's better. It's more than the clues. The clues lead us to the relationship where we're going to talk about in the next several weeks how we have a relationship with God and we find out his attributes. But, but when we look up at the expanse, we make the next step. If the art that's hanging in the skies is that cool, what must the artist be like himself? And so when we drive along the side of the road and it's a beautiful sunset in New Mexico and we pull our car over and we look at it, we don't go, hmm, what a, a marvelous, fortuitous occurrence of accidental circumstance. <laughs> we say, I know the designer of that. Robert Jastrow was NASA's uh, Goddard Institute for Space Studies representative. He wrote a book called God and the Astronomers, and he writes... For the scientist who has lived by faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. I love that. I love when these guys find the clues, and it leads them to the existence of God and a designer God who made a designer planet. And we've been waiting for them to come. And many of them do. The third and final clue I want to talk about today isn't looking for clues or looking at the cosmos, but looking within the conscience. And this is called the moral law, and it's alluded to as we read in Romans chapter 1. And here's a universal feature of human existence. There is within human beings universally a sense of right and wrong. It's not always the same. The values and standards aren't always the same. It, it can shift from culture and depending on what kind of programming, etc., from their youth, but it seems to be universal. And here's the deal. This is something that goes on. People engage in and think about every single day, but they're totally unaware of it. It shows up when a wife criticizes her husband for doing something that's not right. Or a child is mad because his sister got more ice cream than he did. And he says, that's not fair. Or a nation defends a smaller nation against an aggressor nation on moral reasons. That's called the moral law. Where does this sense of right and wrong come from? And why is it so universally felt? And here's, here's the kicker. Even agnostics and atheists enter into this. I've heard them say, well, look at this world. It's full of injustice. There's so much evil. Tsunamis and cancer. In other words, there's something morally wrong. How do you know? Unless you are appealing to something that's right. So you can't say there's injustice unless you have or are appealing to a standard of justice. That's called the moral law. C.S. Lewis, by the way, was won by this argument. He was converted. And he writes, the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man doesn't call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. He was an uh, Oxford atheist who was converted by the moral law. So Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 19, and I'm reading this now in the New Living Translation, for the truth of God is known to them instinctively. Everybody makes moral comparisons. 
Well, that person's better or worse, or this is right and that is wrong. But moral comparisons demand an objective moral standard of some kind. So, if I were to put a couple of pictures up on the screen of Mother Teresa and Adolf Hitler, you look at that, and, and I know you're chuckling, because instinctively you know that Mother Teresa is better than Adolf Hitler. What she believed, how she lived, what she thought. You'd only have to go to a college philosophy course to get that turned around and think anything different. <laughs> but you, you know that intuitively. That's the moral law. Where does that come from? It's a clue. I was in the um, airport some time back. My wife actually found this book and thought I should get it. And I, I agreed. I loved it. It's called The Language of God. It's got a, a DNA model on the front. It says, The scientist presents evidence for belief. Well, what catches my attention about the book is it was written by Francis Collins. Now, I don't know if that rings a bell. Francis Collins is one of the most eminent scientists living today. He is the head of the Human Genome Project. Ever heard of that? The decoding of the human DNA and unveiling and unraveling that language, breaking the code. He's the head of that project. He was an agnostic who became a very staunch atheist. And now he's not. Now he believes in God. Now he has faith. And um, he, he admits in the book that he had drawn his conclusions about God without examining all of the data, which is a no-no for a scientist. And so he said, to my own shame, here I had a presupposition that God doesn't exist, he can't exist, but I hadn't examined all the data. He started examining the data. Now he believes in God. And what got to him was this thought of the moral law. He read C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. And this is what he writes in this book. Could there be a more important question in all of human existence than, is there a God? He read mere Christianity, examined the argument of the moral law, and he, he writes this. I had started this journey of intellectual exploration to confirm my atheism. That now lay in ruins as the argument from the moral law and many others forced me to admit in the plausibility of the God hypothesis, he calls it. Faith in God now seems more rational than disbelief. I just want you to hear that. Because last week I made a statement that if you are an atheist, you have way more faith than I do as a theist and as a Christian. It takes more faith to hold your position as an atheist than it does for me to hold my position because of the evidence. Now, here is the head of the Human Genome Project, one of the, the astute scientists of our time, who says faith in God seems more rational than disbelief. And there are so many of these testimonies of people who find the clues they look for a cause, and then they look at the world, and they look within the conscience. And eventually, many of them look up to God. So, my plea and appeal to you as the body of Christ is that you engage in the conversation with unbelievers. And when they're at Starbucks and they bring up a notion of how God can exist, that you take these tools out and you use them. And you engage in the process. 
And let's not become a fortress mentality kind of a church where, no, you want to learn anything about God, you come to church. Well, Jesus didn't say, come ye. He said, go ye into all the world. And so as we get emptied out in just a few minutes and go to our homes and our jobs and our places of influence, engage them in conversation. Now, as you do, three things I want you to remember. You'll be challenged. You will be challenged. If you stay, can't wait to share these with people and you start engaging in it, you're not going to have them immediately probably go, okay, well, let's pray then, right now. <laughs> I'm ready. They're going to want to think it through. They have predispositions toward not believing because they've been told wrongly that you can't be intellectually honest and believe in God at the same time. And they bought that line. So you're going to be challenged. Number two, you can be confident. You don't have to weasel around anymore with this stuff. You can be confident that though they have good questions, you've got great answers to meet any of those questions. Some of the greatest minds in history have come to know Jesus Christ personally and still retained all of their scientific involvement. So you will be challenged. You can be confident. Number three, you should be careful. You should be respectful. Don't bulldoze them. Don't walk in and go, you pagan. Hell for you. You won't win many that way. You want to be respectful. You want to let them wrestle and ask the questions and be kind to them. I leave you with this. A familiar passage Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And that's with respect. With respect. But engage. Get into the battle. Talk it out. You'll be fascinated how God will use it. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that we know you. We know the one who stretched out, even as we have sung the universe, even displayed in part in this background that is behind me. The heavens declare the glory of God. The great expanse of the starry host shows His handiwork. And in their orbits and with the seasons and the regularity and observability that we have, we can tell that the first uncaused cause was not a force, but rather a person who exercised power, God. One who designed this designer planet for advanced life as we enjoy it. And Father, deep within us is a sense, however skewed, of something right and something wrong, of something just and something unjust. And your Bible, your word, holds objectively the true standard of that. Lord, I pray that if we have never given our lives to Christ, I pray at least we would, we would explore and consider and move forward. And maybe we're even ready to do that today. But Father, I do pray that you to further equip us and enable us to joyfully, confidently, talk, engage, and process this through with these, our loved ones, our family members, people we go to school with, work with, who would love to believe 
there is no God because it protects them in their standard of life. I pray, Lord, that you would lovingly use us to break through that shell and to communicate your plan and love in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.